Broadcasting live from the phx.fm studio in Phoenix, Arizona. It's time for Valley Business Radio, spotlighting the Valley's best businesses and the people who lead them. Hello and welcome to Valley Business Radio, where we tell the stories that traditional media tends to ignore and help connect you to the right people. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian McIntyre. I'm joined in the studio today by a very special guest visiting us from back east. Ambassador Rick Barton is here. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because we've spent some time in similar parts of the world. Your experience is very different from mine, but you're here with the Phoenix Committee on Foreign Relations. You're giving a talk tonight. You've got a book that's just come out. So tell us a little bit about what you're up to and, and what brings you to the Valley. Great. Well, thanks so much. The The reason I wrote the book is after 25 years of working in over 40 conflict places, I felt that we could do a better job. And at the heart of doing a better job in a democracy is to have an engaged and a concerned citizenry. And one that actually recognizes that we could be much more successful than we've been. So that's why I'm here uh, to be to continue that conversation. And I've, I've been very appreciative that this committee has pursued me for over a year. So I came on a perfect day and I'm looking forward to having a few days in, in Phoenix. Absolutely. Well, we're glad you're here. I have been intrigued and I'm not from Arizona. I grew up in California and have also lived and worked uh, overseas extensively, mostly in Africa and the Middle East. I have been intrigued to discover how many different international connections and dynamics there are here in the Valley. The Phoenix Committee on Foreign Relations is certainly one center of those uh, with its own community um, of folks who are interested in international affairs. Obviously, the Thunderbird School at ASU has been a longstanding provider of education on international topics. there's very strong connections between the United States and Mexico, both in the business world as well as obviously culturally and, and through family connections and so on. But it's uncommon that we get to have conversations like the one that you are bringing to the world uh, with folks with your depth of experience. The book, Peace Works, America's Unifying Role in a Turbulent World, came out uh, in 2018. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the book and what you're trying to accomplish there. Sure, and I just, uh, another local flavor, my brother went to, my oldest brother went to Thunderbird. So we've had some exposure here. And we had a family member who was the publisher of The Republic for a number of years, going back, one of my father's cousins. Um, so it's great to great to be here. What My, my feeling uh, is that the United States has a, a unique role in the world. We are actually invited to most of the conversations that are taking place. You don't see any other country routinely invited. Now, that's because we do have the ability to do something, but also because on occasion we've really done the right thing. We've done, we've done well by the people of a place. Um, but I, I recognize that we've drifted away from that. And over the last 20 wars that the United States has been involved in. We haven't really ever voted on it. The the United States Congress hasn't voted on that. 
the United States taxpayers have not been asked to pay for it with extra taxes. And it used to be that about 40% of American families had a direct connection to the U.S. military, actually somebody in their family serving. Now it's less than 1%. So if you're not if you're not voting on it and you're not paying for it and you're not serving in it we are we may well be on a tourist visa and on a, we don't fight these kinds of very complicated wars an 18 year war now plus in Afghanistan almost the same length in Iraq uh, unless the american public is cares about it and forces their elected representatives to to be more thoughtful in what they do as well. So that's really at the heart of it. But I, but I don't want to – it's not a book about castigating us. It's a book that says, look, we are looked to by others to be constructive. We haven't hit the mark. But there are plenty of examples that actually I was involved in many of them, and I want people to know that you can be good at this work if you're not looking to spend the rest of your life in a country, if you are actually thinking in terms of the local people, trusting them, and then having catalytic interventions that allow you to encourage them to do things that they would like to do if they had more liquidity or more flexibility or more creativity. So that's the space that I'm trying to fill. And I believe that in light of how these conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq have cost trillions of dollars thousands of lives, tens of thousands of lives in the country that we need to recommit ourselves to doing it better. And in part of that is making sure we don't just drift off into uh, odd parts of the world where, where the American public doesn't even know what's going on. Uh, so that's, the, that's what's driven me to this. You raise so many issues in, in that wonderful statement. I'd love to unpack many of them here if we can. Because there is a fascinating relationship between democracy and an informed citizenry that has gotten somewhat lost. And I think many of us, quite frankly, have been complicit in that as media companies have been challenged in their own funding models mm -hmm. to be driven by clicks and, mm -hmm. you know, feeding you know, baser emotions in order to get eyeballs and, and that drives ad revenue and things of that. And there's, a, there's a very complex set of things. We can't get into all of the details. But even going back to what some folks would say was a simpler time, which of course is not, <laughs> you know, the, the golden years were never all that great. Right. There's some interesting and informative lessons to learn from the complexity of some of these things. Let's just start this by by going back to a defining moment in international affairs. 1989, the Berlin Wall comes down. That's the beginning of a process that results within a year in the collapse of the Soviet empire. I was a young man at the time, not aware of the implications of what we were seeing unfold. Where were you? What was going on? What was your role? Your, your official bio sort of starts with... Mm. 1994. We'll get yeah, there, yeah, but yeah. take us back to that well, moment. So at that time, I was living in Maine. I had a business. Uh, I was involved, active in in, in local state politics. 
Um, I had run for office uh, back in 1976, so when I was a very young man. But I'd stayed very engaged because I really believe in in the core commitment to public service. Um, so I was, I think I was as caught up as everybody else in the potential of that moment. And I think the United States actually played a really constructive role, not only in easing the transition for the former Soviet Union. It's not, it hasn't been a totally successful one, but it's been pretty much nonviolent. Uh, since that time, and in the, at a large in, scale, and in the unifying of yeah, in the large scale, and 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 in a domestic sense, and the unifying of Germany. So there were a lot of good things came about, but what we may have not done, and what I and I think this uh, continues in the work that I've been that I've had a chance to do, is we didn't really seize the potential. We didn't really think through what more it could mean. I think there we had we had some visionary leadership. I think uh, the first President Bush uh, had had a vision of this. Uh, but we kind of took it for granted. And then I got when I became active, there was just an outbreak of small of small wars, very violent wars. So the Rwanda with a million people being killed, uh, at least 800,000 of them in the genocide. Uh, Bosnia, the invasion of, of Haiti, which did not cost any American lives, but uh, still there, there was some violence there. So there, was, there were a lot of very complicated small wars, and it struck me when I got to working in this space that what was going to happen is that we, we, had seen, uh, we had seen small wars in small places and small wars in big places, and now we were seeing big wars in small places. So what was going to prevent big wars happening in bigger places? And that's essentially what we saw. So Afghanistan was— Ten times the population of of, uh, of some of the countries that we were in in the 1990s. Um, the they were uh, Iraq uh, was also much much bigger, and these places don't get simpler. I I had a chance to be a tourist in Vietnam this last uh, about a year ago now, and you you sort of as you as I traveled around Vietnam, I I wondered. Who did we think we were that we could get that big a country, now 90-plus million people, stretched out all over the place uh, under control with a few hundred thousand soldiers and lots of bombs? It just it – just, the geography alone, let alone the complexity of each village and the history that they had and the different ruling classes and the rest of it. So I spent a lot of time in my book – on discussing how you need to know the place. And if the United States doesn't know 100 people in a place, please don't send U.S. soldiers. Now, that would have kept us out of Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq, which are three of the most notable moments in our history in the last 50, 60 years. And it's not that big a request. I mean, I don't mean a hundred I don't mean a hundred people that work in the Ministry of Finance. I mean a hundred people in the country. And that doesn't mean that we should be going into war when we know a hundred people. But please don't send US soldiers if you don't have that most fundamental familiarity with a place. Let, let's skip back and forth a little bit because I think this will be fun on the timeline. So uh, I'll share a personal example. In two thousand two 
I was living again in Amman, Jordan. I had a Fulbright and a fabulous program that has really created many opportunities yeah, for you know, Americans to to contribute and be in be informed by their experience in other places. But probably that aspect of the program is exceeded by the benefit to graduate students from other countries who then come in the reverse share, you know, to the United States to study here. Uh, my Fulbright year was ending. I was straddling two, uh, two cohorts. And, um, you know, as you do in expat worlds, you kind of get to know everybody else who's there. And Amman at the time is a relatively small place. I've been going there since, the, since 1994, uh, having started in archaeology and moved into other uh, things. Uh. But um, I was struck as the, as the drum beats for the invasion of Iraq were being beaten louder and louder and louder. From this unique point of view, I saw things change. The ordinary expats were getting sent home, right? Not just to the United States, but also to France and Britain and the UK and whatever. The non-essential embassy staff were being withdrawn. Um, all the, the English as a second language teachers and the business owners and the f folks of that nature were leaving. And a very interesting other bunch of folks was coming in. The journalists, the contractors... Uh, the the military folks, the ordinary military, you didn't see as much, but uh, some of the older uh, non-regulation haircut folks <laughs> <laughs> that you might bump into in a bar, uh, quiet professionals, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, but during that period of time, when I had no formal connection, of course, and actually never have had any connection to U.S. government activity, um, I was interested to realize the difference between our presence there and some of the other uh, friendly governments there. I spent some time uh, living in the home of some folks from the British Embassy, uh, which at that time had six primary staff, whereas the U.S. Embassy in Amman had about 500, right? And yet the level of cultural awareness and the depth of knowledge and the linguistic ability of the British diplomats, the average age of whom was probably 28, uh, far, out, far exceeded uh, what you typically found in the very large kind of <laughs> very kind of, I don't know, machinery like workings of the U.S. embassy. So our diplomatic and other mm -hmm. uh, engagements it, it has its own flavor. Its own style. What are your thoughts yeah. on what I'm? Well, I, I think it's. Here? I think it's a really fair comment. I've, one of the questions that I've taken to asking audiences, and may get a chance uh, when I'm in Phoenix, but certainly can present it here, is to describe two choices that we might have as taxpayers or as public officials or whatever. And it. It. it the question would be. If you had a choice between spending $500 million on a new U.S. embassy in Baghdad or $500 million to prepare 500 Americans to be able to operate in a place like Baghdad, so a million per American, so they, we, we would really have the skill sets to the language, the cultural familiarity, the geographic uh, exposure, which would you take? Now, when I offer that choice to American audiences, 95 plus percent of the people say they would rather invest in the 500 Americans than and a, mil a million each than they would on a U.S. embassy. And I, then I say, 
I have bad news for you. We ended up building the embassy in Baghdad. It cost $700 million, not the original $500 million. We cannot staff it now. With It's, has, it's overly staffed with security people because that's really the, the circumstance. And they don't have any of these native skills. Um, and we're not doing that much better in terms of advancing our knowledge of these places, which we have to do. And there are plenty of Americans who would sign up for that kind of training and would like to be part of it. I know that if we if we created 500 of those positions, that we would probably have 50,000 people apply for them. Uh, so it's not that the American curiosity doesn't exist. It's just that we're not actually uh, answering the bell the right way. So so I think it's a weakness. I don't know that we need 500 Americans at, the, at an embassy in Baghdad. I would, I would argue no, uh, because I still think at the end of the day, you want to really go with the local people, but you have to have you want to have a powerful connection with them. And one way you connect to them is that you understand you you clearly have a sophisticated appreciation of who they are and and what's going on in their society. And we're not doing that as well as we could either. We do do it quite quite well. For example, Ryan Crocker, who was our ambassador in Baghdad. When he went down to the main street of town in Baghdad to to celebrate that the businesses were reopening, uh, he made quite a great impression. But most everybody who was along with him for the ride, except for the Washington Post Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who did speak Arabic, almost nobody else knew what was going on as he conversed with the merchants and the shoppers. And that's not optimal either. You can't just have one person who's who, especially since he's your CEO and he's uh, he's not going to be on the street that often. So anyway, I think it's something we could do. It's well within our reach. Uh, we have the money for it, but we're going to have to commit to the people and to our people. And investing in people is always harder than it is investing in in uh, bricks and mortar. But I don't think that bricks and mortar is our problem in many parts of the world. We, we've been through cycles in, in several hundred years of, of this democratic experiment where varying degrees of uh, populism versus, and, you know, let's call it what it is, nationalism, um, have carried the day. And then periods of time where a more internationalist uh, outlook has gotten more airplay. I think it's sim- overly simplistic to reduce any period of our country's history to to some of those things. But there's clearly been t- trend-setting uh, moments in time. Sure. Going back now to the early 90s, that a very, very interesting period. And you were there working in a capacity that puts you right into the middle of this. So President Clinton comes into office in 1992. Of course, not to overshadow, I, I think if we had more time, we ought to talk about, I think, some of the very important contributions in that tumultuous transitional period that that uh, George Bush Sr. provided, mm-hmm. and um, you know, positively <clears throat> and negatively, but there was something there navigating that nobody had a map for what we were navigating in that moment. Uh, in 1992, you know, things happening in Cambodia, things happening in 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 the former Soviet republics that are starting to look problematic. Of course, Mogadishu in 93 really changes in a serious way the public perception because there's nothing like changing public point of view than 
seeing the bodies of U.S. soldiers dragged through the streets. That was a hor- horrific mm-hmm. moment um, and really probably um, one that I think gave a lot of people pause in this, what are we doing here For kind sure. of moment. Sure. But then in 1994, you start the Office of Transition Initiatives through USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development. Yes. Take us into that moment in time because that's a, talk about a complex moment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of folks saying, get out of these places. We're not doing that anymore. And we haven't even gotten to 95, 97, all the places, right? Um, of course, the first, uh, the first Iraq uh, war, the Iraqis would say it's the second Iraq war, of course, because the first Iraq war is 1980 to 1988, the one they fought with Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, another conflict that, by the way, the horrific nature of that is, I think, very poorly understood. Mm-hmm. So here you are. Uh, you are now at USAID. Mm-hmm. And this new office is created. What's the goal? How does it play out? And talk about some of those early uh, moments. Yeah, there's, the period was described as Vietmalia. So that the combination of Vietnam and Somalia yeah. had really uh, chilled the American public and and our public servants to doing anything. And suddenly you had this big opening with the former Soviet Union and all these countries coming into play and are wanting to make sure that that transition went better. But then also the horrific events of Bosnia in particular, where you, where you suddenly had right in the middle of Europe because you're only – you're only about an hour away when you land in Zagreb, Croatia, whatever. It's it's an hour flight from just about anywhere in in Europe. So, and there was again a flood of refugees. The the, the wake up calls that we continue to uh, struggle with today were the very same ones of that time. So what? So there was all this. Uh, kind of a dynamic in play, but the 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 bureaucracy wasn't really reacting very well. So when I was hired to start this new, very small office in USAID, it was I was told that I would have twenty million dollars. What coming from Maine, that seemed like a lot of money, but it, in the U.S. government, it's not a ton of money. I mean, that would probably do you know a few blocks of one of your one of your uh, repaving projects in in Phoenix, uh, and uh, four people. So we weren't we weren't being given a license to take over the world, but. What I what I realized was that the normal bureaucracy wanted to have nothing to do with conflict. Why? Because you could get hurt there, and yes. and people don't really civilians don't all sign up for life threatening work. On the other hand, what we saw was that the every every country that was on the front page of the news in those days is the places that we would probably have the chance to work in. So I remember coming back from my very first trip into a war zone. I went to Sarajevo, and there was a lull in the fighting. Still, there were snipers around, and there was and there was a lot of evidence of war, but I wasn't being shelled. I went to the front line and that kind of thing. But it wasn't I – didn't, I didn't feel dangerous other than when I was walking down the street – I did notice that I didn't just stay on the on the shady or sunny side of the street. I actually kind of skipped behind uh, burning dumpsters and other other shelter that was provided. But I came back to Washington, and immediately the administrator liked what I had 
seen in my in my two weeks of interviewing a couple hundred people who lived in Sarajevo. And they said, we'd like you to go to Rwanda. Now, I barely knew where Rwanda was, but I remember going to the administrator's office and talking to his his secretary and telling her, I just was back from Bosnia and I was on my way to Rwanda. This is the summer of 1994. And she said, does somebody not like you? Now, that was the first of many naive moments that I discovered the hard way because I, I thought it was an honor to be able to do this work. And, I, and, it, and it really is because when you go in in a place that's so flattened and people have suffered so much, it turns out that the simplest ideas, especially if you engage the local people, are really have a chance of catching on and of doing much, much more than 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 a very small investment uh, would would warrant or would or would or you would expect. So that's kind of how it got into it. But it, there there wasn't we didn't have the normal bureaucratic resistance. Why? Because we were dealing with places at war. And if you were a traditional development person or even a traditional humanitarian, the humanitarians at that time, ninety percent of their work was in natural disasters. By the time I left AID, 90% of humanitarian work was in man-made disasters. What are man-made disasters? Well, today it's climate change as well. But in those days, it was primarily war. Yeah, and we had to invent new terms for it. They were complex emergencies. Exactly. That was, right? Which was the— That was the new phrase. The new, the, the new phrase. And it's, it's very interesting. So I have been more active on the non-governmental side of these things. Um, but in many ways— these strains are entangled to a degree that I think the NGOs don't like to talk about um, because with the exception of a few um, very uh, strong and uh, ideologically driven uh, French organizations <laughs> primarily, um, the, the, the degree to which anyone is operating independently and impartially is always, always an interesting debate. And, and I, I think it's an important conversation to have, by the way, so the idea of independence means, you know, no one's telling you what to do and impartiality means essentially that you're doing your own assessments to figure out who needs what. And then as a professional relief organization, you're making those decisions. Um, but in environments where everyone's working together to and, and try it, to— And it allows you to work both sides because the humanitarian mandate is— to save lives, to help people who are suffering. And to do that, you cannot pick one side, well, not the other. And that's this is correct. That's and the idea, but this is where it gets very And unless you're the ICRC or the International Committee of the Red Cross or Red Crescent Societies, you're, you're not, that's more of an ideal than a it practical operational reality. Uh, in, in reality, on the ground, you are in fact taking sides and not wanting to admit it, and that's you know that's, so, that's one of the complications. Just a pragmatic thing, it is. right? Um, now, having said that, the, the idea that even that you would create programs, because at the end of the day, in these initiatives, these are projects that require people, they require money, they require partnerships. Uh, you're going into a place to try to find someone who can help make something happen, write a check for it. You know, whether that money's coming directly from a, a national government or whether it's coming from a fund on the European model, you know, Echoes Humanitarian, uh, uh, the EU has their own fund, but everyone's pooling their money and somehow that makes it less. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, 
But then you've got to go on the ground and find the right partners, the right projects, you know, uh, fix the water, fix the electricity. Meanwhile, the conflict continues. This is a very complex space. It's become somewhat of a genre uh, to reflect on some of these moments and talk about the failures. Mm -hmm. I'm less interested in that, to be quite frank, because neither cynicism nor despair helps us at all. But A Bed for the Night, for example, David Reef's book, where he's looking back at your period of time there, saying like, and and mostly aiming his his, uh, rhetorical arrows at the relief agencies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At the humanitarian community. Correct. Um, the the non governmental humanitarian community, um, I don't know what. The, so so that's, talk about some of this complexity. So that's what we were trying to deal with, and we tried to create a, a truly American institution in this world that you described. So this Office of Transition Initiatives at AID and and a later bureau that I've had a chance to start at the State Department, the Conflict and Stabilization Operations. So I really had a chance to start two new ideas in in, let's say, change-resistant uh, institutions. That's and, very, very nicely put. And, uh, you are, Ambassador, you are the, the, the pinnacle of diplomacy, for was, sure. Yeah, some days, on my good days. Um, but we thought that we could do it, and one way we would do it is to, is to have... Is, is to have liquidity and highly flexible liquidity and highly flexible w- workforce as well. So those are two ingredients that we built into this because a typical development program might take two years to go from from sort of conception to to uh, to execution. And we realized that we, we needed to be able to do this in six weeks. So that seemed that bit of innovation gave us a heck of a lot. But then we also tested in Haiti sort of some criteria criteria for where we might work and where we might not work. So we knew we wanted local ownership. And we said, we will bring money, highly flexible money to your community if you follow the, the these rules. And the rules we laid out would be, do you have a community group? We don't care if your parents to a school or farmers to a, an irrigation project or mothers to a well. It doesn't matter to us. We want to see you working together, and we want to see that you've come up with this project based on your ability to work together. So it, it wasn't – we weren't judging whether the school was OSHA qualified. We were judging whether the community came together. Now, if you came together, what are you willing to do? Because we'll contribute the cinder blocks, but will you build the school? Will you paint the, we'll, we'll provide paint, but will you be the painters? So our schools typically in Haiti cost less than $3,500 a piece. They were not models of modern architecture. But compared to the Inter-American Development Bank, which an average school was $85,000, these schools were built by the community, owned by the community. And guess what? They were sized for the community. They knew they could afford one teacher. So it was a one-room schoolhouse. The Inter-American Development Bank might have built a much more beautiful schoolhouse, but it had eight schoolrooms and one teacher. So 
for a school to work, you're going to have to bring these things together. So, but it was mainly, and then we also asked them, will you post your contributions and our contributions in a public place where everybody in town can see them? Now, it turns out that the simplest people on earth, because there's not a high education level in, in Haiti, it's, it is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, they got these ideas instinctively. It didn't take them a second to figure it out. And some communities we'd, run, we'd go into and they'd say, no way, we don't want to touch you. And we'd say, fine, because there are plenty of communities in this country. And what we're trying to do is run a local government government training program. That's what's more important to us than 600 schools, which we ended up helping to build or all the other projects that we help with. We're just using our money to bring forward your own new tradition of self-governance. And they loved it. And so we used a very similar model later in Rwanda after the genocide in bringing women into the game because 70% of the survivors of the genocide were, by definition, women. And we knew that we did not want to go back to a Hutu-Tutsi divide, which had not worked too well and had been a European creation uh, as a way of, of, of governing from in a colonial way. What we decided was Men will always need women. We're not sure women will need men, but this, but this combination of really empowering women is going to help to heal a post-genocide society where uh, two million people have left the country, one million people have been killed, and three million plus people are left to with with one of the greatest tragedies of the modern era. So. But it was an American idea of, hey, you got to be quick, you got to be creative, you got to, let's see some ingenuity. And that's what this book celebrates. It says we don't have to be the Washington Redskins of international uh, conflicts. We could actually win at doing this. And if we do it, the world will be more peaceful and we will also have stronger ties to the people of these places. And at the end of the day, would you rather have 5 million people on your side or would you rather have one, one dictator on your side? And come on, that's not, it shouldn't be as hard an equation as we made it. There was a period of time where we could, all of us who in our various capacities, whether education, uh, development work, humanitarian relief, government service, a, a variety of other things, business, where those of us that worked in, in our own ways in these parts of the world could rely on a certain brand of the United States of America. Mm -hmm. That for better or for worse uh, was looked on in, in some ways favorably almost everywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There were certainly things, and depending on who you were talking to and where you were, where you would get into some of the tougher questions about you know, why we provided unquestioning support for Israel and allowed the perpetuation of a military occupation in the occupied Palestinian territories to persist, et cetera. But these, every one of those people would also agree with you, even as they argued quite strongly uh, for their point of view, that America was generally good. And by the way, could you help me go there? I'd love to have a visa. If you could, if you could work that out, that'd be fantastic. So they could criticize the government and yet at the same time aspire to something American, either for themselves personally, like relocating there or participating in some way in the American ideals. That's changed a bit mm -hmm. or maybe quite a lot mm -hmm. over the years. Um, what's your sense of 
America's brand on the global stage? Well, it's very mixed, and it's and it's not doing well right now. Although, there to be fair, when we've when we were losing sort of popularity in the world, as we did with when George W. Bush uh, took us into Iraq in particular, less so Afghanistan, um, that his presidency was still seen very favorably, for example, in Africa, where the United States saved literally millions of lives with an HIV AIDS uh, initiative that that began to deliver health care on a continent that had that was had looming disaster so you can always find spots where American presidents may be may be taking us into unpopular territory but they are still but they may be seen as more popular uh, so on the other hand our general brand is down uh, and it's probably down 10 or 20 points because we are seen as going it alone and not needing other people and it's 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 really ironic because the the, the the larger problems that we face as a global community right now really don't respect borders very much. So whether it's terrorism or climate change or cybersecurity or uh, uh, chronic warfare – uh, viruses or or, vi- or health health issues, uh, and there are other. They, these are these are actual challenges that are going to require us to work better with each other than ever before. So the idea that we can live in a gated community that's called the United States of America and has the protection of these oceans and whatnot is not that great because a young a 14-year-old in North Korea can probably shut down half of the hospitals in Phoenix on his computer uh, if that's what he so chooses to do. So we're going to have to find new ways of of defining our cooperation. And it comes at a time that many of the critical organizations, international organizations, are kind of in their 70s. The United Nations is going to celebrate its 75th birthday. Now, I happen to be 70 myself, uh, so I know that th- there are a few things I'm not doing quite as well as I used to do. So you have to renew. You have to constantly ch- change and, and, and adapt. And so that idea is a good one, but my feeling is that the people you want to manage change are people who are committed to your cause and committed to your care. So I don't want a hostile doctor saying, I'm the best surgeon on earth. I want a doctor who says, I care a lot about you and I'm the best surgeon on earth. I think I'm going to get a better result with those two things. So sometimes we hear people make a very uh, uh, lucid critique of of a problem, and the critique may be right, but the complete absence of their commitment to the institution and the belief that we could come up with a better way leaves me in a in a in a doubtful position about their. And that's what I try to do in this book is to really say, hey, there really are a lot of ways of doing this better. We don't have to be ignorant. We can actually be uh, informed, and it's not it's not heavy, heavy, heavy lift. I, I also think that it's important that your experience in exactly these kinds of lighter weight and more nimble engagements, projects, experiments, uh, it, there's a there's a practicality to the certain lack 
of perfectionism <laughs> there. It's like, look, we got to right. do something, right. Right? right? It's always better to do something than nothing in almost every case. So what if we're funding a smaller project that makes but it makes a bigger difference for a smaller number of people. And we just did a hundred of those instead of one, right? Yeah. And there's a nimbleness to that that I think, uh, could, you know, and certainly the business and private sectors, uh, you know, the lean startup movement, other, other places where agile, you know, d- uh, processes, uh, has that made it into, in your, in your view, has that made it into the way international work is done? Not enough. There's a big upside in that space, a big, big upside. Now, it, the, the, the space is much more – is much richer with players now than it used to be. So there, there literally are thousands of private nonprofit organizations out there. But many of them are dependent uh, – the fundraising cycle makes them somewhat dependent – on usual suspects. Sure. And so can you be as innovative? Can you be as risk-oriented as you might need to be? Can you report to your congresspeople that there's a 10% chance this is going to succeed? But if it succeeds, it will be as great a success as Amazon in terms of kind of its its ability to expand. And I'll give you one example. I think we also need to use what's available in a place. So I was asked by the Secretary of State in my last job when I was the Assistant Secretary of State for Conflict and Stabilization Operations to take a look at Nigeria. The north of Nigeria was going to hell. It turned out that the Delta area had already was already in hell, but kind of bouncing back. Big, biggest country, biggest economy in Africa. And what are you going to do with $5 million? Well, that's, I mean, that doesn't seem like you're going to get very far of trying to reach 165 million people. But what we saw were a couple things going on in Nigeria that were really exciting. They, they had the best broadcast, expansion of their broadcast industry that, that was going on anywhere uh, in the world. So they had new television stations, networks, new radio stations, studios that that would dwarf the the glamour of this one, um, and and they had all kinds of movements, social social media movements, and Occupy Nigeria had started and whatnot. So there was there was something going on in addition to the terrorists in the north taking students hostage and mistreating them and whatnot. But they also had the biggest uh, filmmaking industry in in uh, Nigeria called Nolly in in Africa called Nollywood, and we got a chance to meet the Steven Spielberg of of Nollywood, uh, a man called literally they call him the superstar director Jetta Amata. His name is Jetta Amata, but. But, His honorific but, but, was but, much longer. But he's always introduced as superstar director Jet Damata. That's great. We came up with a notion that what we could do is take the the view in Nigeria that violence pays, and challenge it in a seri- in a in a reality television series that would eventually run on all six major networks at the same time. You could not watch another another show other than Dawn in the Creeks. And you can go online and, and bring up some of these shows. And we use superstar director Jetta Mata to not only film these, but the 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 reality series was one of going into small villages in the Delta region of Nigeria where violence was prevalent. And he would 
teach local youths how to make films, Nollywood films, that were themed on we can solve problems in Nigeria without violence. So that's a way you can capture the imagination of 165 million people without having to build a new law school, create 10 new radio stations. I mean, all the kinds of things that development people like to do and humanitarians to some extent do as well. So, but we took what was there and the studies on how to break these cycles of violence were already done for the World Bank and others by Nigerians. So the, 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 the thinking had been done, but how did you... How do you turn it into a, rea- a reality? So we were like the Mike Bloomberg of, 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 uh, of Nigeria for two years. And the second year, it was pretty much paid for by advertising. So we didn't have to uh, subsidize that again. But it was what our Secretary of State, at that point, Hillary Clinton, she was looking for. How do we show the Nigerian people that we've got to make – they've got to make a change if they're going to be Africa's most – uh, significant country. And that was an initial effort. It hasn't transformed the country yet, sure. but it just shows the opening. Well, and it's important because it reminds us of something that's, I guess, always been there uh, in a sense. You know, Voice of America has been around a long time as a, as a media property, uh, p- pushing certain, you know, perspectives, but also providing an important service. But it reminds me of some of the other initiatives in new media or creative media executions, you know, there's a there's a, a, a shop in Nairobi that produces an, an incredible amount of uh, graphic novels and comic books and things of that nature, but they use that platform also to educate youth about HIV AIDS in a way that is actually reaching the under 18 set and none of the other traditional methods of, of trying to inform people about this very, very significant challenge. So going back to AID and to the Office of Transition Initiatives, one of my colleagues, Steve Morrison, who now runs one of the best healthcare programs in Washington, uh, he was working on uh, Angola in this new office. And we did exactly that. We, we, we knew that landmines were the scourge of the country. And we, so we, we found some local theater groups, or Steve found local theater groups that began to enact the dangers of walking into mine-littered fields uh, with with local acting groups that that they would literally take over the center of a market and hundreds of people would gather immediately and they would do multiple skits yeah. throughout the course Pop of the day. Pop-up theater. Pop-up theater. Yeah. And that was but, but it was all done with Angolans. We weren't writing the scripts they probably did, they may have done some things that were anti-American somewhere along the line but we weren't it, checking them because we were there to deal with the landmine I mean, issue. And in, a, in a democracy, those conversations ought to have they're gonna a space, right? It's, it's, it's there. So now, we also, but also we heard from Voice of America, they said, we would love to do a Portuguese language uh, daily news broadcast into Angola where we can provide for the first time in decades reliable daily information. And We've helped to make that possible. So Voice of America was – this was their most exciting innovation of the year. And they wouldn't have done it if we hadn't been there to provide a modest amount of money to, to reach a, a country of uh, 12 million people. 
Let's switch gears here for a minute as we begin to wrap up this conversation and talk about changing the mindset and awareness of another youthful population, and that is the one here at home. You've spoken uh, quite eloquently to the need for a more globally informed citizenry and also to create awareness among young people that interesting work exists outside of the framework of what they might have expected. By the way, my own kind of haphazard career has been nothing but a series of accidents. And I used to tell my own students when I was teaching at Berkeley, listen, make plans, but just don't forget that a lot of really interesting stuff is going to show up that was not on your plan. The best jobs I've ever gotten... I never got by applying for them or going in through the front door. I got them by being the right person in the wrong place at the right time. And that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a career quite, strategy. That's quite true in my own case. For sure. And, uh, and you end up meeting interesting people and doing interesting work and saying, uh, you know, well, I think, I think I could do that. <laughs> Even when some of those things at the time were probably saying yes to things that were probably a bad idea, yeah. like going off to Rwanda. <laughs> Is that a good idea? Is someone not like you? What are we doing right when it comes to educating young Americans about the issues you address in your book and in your life work? And where are some opportunities that we need to do better? Well, the average American has a tremendous exposure or the opportunity for exposure. Now, whether they follow it or not, especially uh, with the Internet these days, it just it, – and – I don't think we're – we need to do more in the schools. I mean we, we're, we're probably not doing as good a job as we could at really making sure that people understand our own system as well as understanding that, the, that there's a fascinating world out there. I think to really capture the American public's imagination – you have to be – it has to be something of interest and, and the world is a fascinating place. I mean anybody, anybody who leaves their neighborhood sees something every day that is quite spectacular. Then people have to have a feeling that you can be successful in helping to address it because nobody likes to support a losing team forever. And we've, we've been on a bit of a losing streak over the last uh, several decades here. So I think those, those two things are terribly important. We have to be invited to the dance as well. So this is not the work of just brilliant people who go to elite schools. This is work that will benefit from and engage the American public because you have skills that matter, whatever they happen to be. So feeling that welcome that, that it's not an elite running it is terribly important. And then finally, understanding the the pluses and minuses of, of a more peaceful world. A more peaceful world is a great one for us, for our children, for our businesses, for our society. And a, a war in conflict, none of those things work for us. And there are also places where terrorists and so – it turns out that having a little bit of fear is a good thing. When George Marshall went off to sell the Marshall Plan to the American public, they had 800 meetings around the country to sell it. But they were making no progress whatsoever until they said, we have to stop communism. When you combined rebuilding Europe with stopping communism, then you had the American buy-in. And I think that's fair. I mean, it's not all that it's going to be. Uh, it's not all kumbaya. You also are trying to prevent some really bad things from happening. And a world at war is a bad place for the United States. We benefit as the biggest 
player in the world right now from a world that's mostly at peace, that's mostly healthy, and the rest of it. So it's not a it's not an uncomplicated uh, formula. And I always encourage people to think about their own lives. I mean, if you, if it's dangerous, do you do you walk out your door? No. Okay, that's a relevant experience. If 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 you tell your your son or daughter what to do and they don't listen to you, why would you expect to have that much more influence going into a war zone where people are killing their neighbors to survive or because they think they're going to get something from it? That does not simplify things. And that also only characterizes a few of the war zones. It, it's not always the neighbors killing the neighbors. That has happened. No, that has But happened. it's not also the norm. I mean, uh, you know, what fascinates me is reading accounts of, of conflicts I was not in because I was too young. But even, you know, the Civil War playing out in Beirut from 75 through into the 90s, uh, the fact that there are millions of people continuing to live their daily lives and, and buy groceries and raise their kids. And yes, horrific things are also happening. Mm -hmm. There's a degree to which I think our remoteness from some of these things has created a false um, false fear as yeah, well. Yeah. Now, an I'm not saying be— Excessive fear. Right, yeah. exactly. An, 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 an uninformedness. Well, a couple of thoughts here. The first one is I think at some level it would be useful to apply some of those same commitments— to our own youth. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine, for example, a reality TV show, except it's not on TV, it's on TikTok, uh, and which is the app that a billion people under the age of 14 are currently using every single day. And it's showing young Americans engaging in things and discovering new truths and things about themselves and things about the world. And, and really in the spirit of Senator Fulbright's commitment to cultural exchange mm -hmm. being changed by their experiences, not only changing the yeah. places they go. I totally agree with that. Right? That would be interesting. But in order to get there, we've also got to rekindle some kind of a desire to make a difference in the face of the cynicism and the apathy and the just general, you know, you guys have broken this thing, so I'm just going to do something else with my life. I mean, I don't know if the call is there. I think there's, I mean, I obviously I have a daughter who's a school teacher in Oakland, um, tough neighborhood, uh, super dedicated, uh, hard, hard work, quite rewarding at the same time. So I think, I do think that giving people the opportunity to have these experiences so it's not just the three kids in the classroom who wave their hands first when a question is asked, but really making sure that we are increasing the exposure is is a critical piece of it. And that's part of, I mean, that's why it's great to be on your, uh, here as your guest and to be in Phoenix, because if I can, if I can kindle a little bit more excitement, uh, and and a sense of purpose than writing a book like this and having had a chance to do this work supported by the U.S. taxpayers has uh, been a phenomenal uh, gift. Well, my, my parting thought here, and I'm so grateful for the work you're doing, it, it, it seems to me very much in a spirit of an, another old American tradition, which is the Chautauqua and the idea that somebody comes in and delivers a, a talk to uh, to a public audience that gets them thinking uh, and changes the way they view themselves and view others. That's what that's what books 
that's what senior diplomats, that's what elders of any kind in any community can provide. And we had to do a lot of that after the after the Civil War. And that's the, the Chautauquas. Many of these places started as a result of people recognizing that our country was torn and that we had to come together. And one way to do that was to listen to others and get ideas from them and then building on them any way you want to. Yeah. And, you know, we have, I think, I, I've never actually framed it up this way, but I'm, I, I think I'm going to going to go there. I think we have another civil war that started in this country on the radio in the 90s and has created a sense of division that is not actually real, that so many people have become animated by. It's obviously transitioned onto table, uh, cable news and things of that nature. But I, I think bringing back an older tradition that puts unity and commonality at the forefront would have us look at our differences with appreciation rather than with animosity. And one way we could – I agree with you. One way we could do that is to always demand uh, solutions to problems. Almost anybody can describe a problem or can describe hypocrisy or can describe uh, an unreliable action. But – coming up with, okay, so what would you do better? Even if it's just 5149 better, um, is a real requirement. Well, there's so much more that I think we could learn, uh, and we just simply don't have time. We didn't talk at all about your period of time with the uh, the UN Council on Refugees. Sorry, I'm getting that wrong. The High, <laughs> the high Commissioner for Refugees, um, UNHCR is how I automatically yeah, think yeah. of it, but, but I try not to use the acronyms outside of our verified circles. Uh, but I am so inspired by what you're doing. I'm looking forward uh, to actually reading the book. I want to thank you for coming here to Arizona and sharing your thoughts. And, uh, and, and also thank you to the Phoenix Committee on Foreign Relations for bringing you. Thank you. My pleasure. For all of us here at phx.fm, this is Dr. Adrian McIntyre. We'll see you next time on Valley Business Radio. 